I choose to pray. I hope you also choose and have chosen to pray because of what God does when we pray, when his people pray, that we may know him more and may know him more fully. Uh, Scarlett, thank you. What a blessing. Thanks for writing and thank you all for leading us in music. It's been a good day of worship. Hadn't it been a good day of worship? Aren't you glad that you're here? Aren't you glad that you're here? Isn't it good to be with brothers and sisters in the house of the Lord? To come and to learn, to come and to worship, to come and to join our hearts together. There's something about the people of God joining together under the word of God, singing praises to God that, uh, that you don't experience in any other context. Uh, I'm glad that you're here. We're studying undertaking the task, making discipleship. Uh, you notice our worship guide uh, this is our, our our value uh, one of our values is that we make disciples our purpose is that we glorify God together we glorify God by making mature disciples of all nations starting right here in the west end making mature disciples and so that's what we're studying how do we get equipped how do we really undertake the task of making disciples uh, we've had Oregon and Tim on the cover of our worship guide now for about six or seven weeks they are available to autograph these for you, if you would like. Uh, <coughs> Tim, <coughs> Tim mentioned that. He did say it was time for a different graphic. But that's a picture of uh, iron sharpening iron, investing our lives into one another. Our task is to make disciples, to invest our lives in others that they may follow hard after Jesus. So that when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, we can present them mature, complete, perfect, fully furnished. There are many reasons that we don't do this very much, that we don't grab hold of this in our life. We, uh, we're fine being a good influence or living life the best we can, but sometimes it's hard to just say, all right, I care about this other person enough to spend time and invest them. One is simple selfishness. You know, it takes time and energy. You've got to deny yourself to make disciples. You've got to take time that you could be doing other things and do this thing that God has called us to do. Another is a fear of inadequacy, not realizing that God through his word and through his Holy Spirit who indwells us is more than adequate. Nothing is impossible with God, amen? And you've heard me say a thousand times, I can't, he never said I could. He can, he always said he would. We trust him to accomplish his will in us and through us. Or it may be for many of us that we're waiting. You like this series. All right, make disciples. I can't wait on somebody to choose me. And like kids in a line before when teams are being chosen, it's kind of like, all right, here I am. Somebody pick me. I'm, I'm here and I need this and I need that and I need to be disciples. And so pick me, pick me. Yeah, and I don't know if that's you or, or where you are. You may be glad of this series because now the anticipation is somebody's going to pick me up and be my disciple or my friend. But I want to tell you that, no, this truth is for you. If you're a child of God, regardless of where you are on your journey, you're called to make disciples. And so I'm going to talk about four stages of our lives in Christ in order to equip us to make disciples for the glory of God. We're going to start by focusing on a struggling young disciple and those who invested in him. And the plan is to introduce him, to walk you through 
his struggles and through his story and spend a little bit of time looking at how to disciple. This morning we're going to talk about two stages, not all four. We're going to talk about two stages, and the first is simply the enthusiastic beginner. Now, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time with you here because those are the guys you want. Those are the guys that are easiest. We're going to get focused on that. But you've got the enthusiastic beginner, but then inevitably... You're going to disciple someone who's discouraged, and so you'll also have the opportunity to disciple the discouraged disciple. All right, we're going to pick up a story with Acts. Oregon has already read the passage of Scripture about how God miraculously protected Peter, freed him from prison, walked him out of the gate. Peter thought it was a dream until he saw God's hand at work and just uh, amazed. He went to Mary's house. Now, who is Mary. We don't know a lot about her. She was probably the host of a home church. We know that she invited the believers to come to her house, and they would pray together. They were really concerned about Peter, so they were praying that God would deliver Peter. You know how that went. Peter showed up at the door, and they couldn't believe it. They were astonished. But what we find is we meet a young man, Mary's son. By the way, this is Barnabas. You remember Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas, whose name means sons of encouragement. This is Barnabas' cousin. He's a young man named John whose surname is Mark. Sometimes he's called John, sometimes he's called Mark, sometimes he's called John Mark. And we'll get more familiar with him this week and next week. But now, I want you to think of him as an enthusiastic beginner. Paul and Barnabas had been up in Antioch where a new church had been planted. God was moving and working there. And they had come from Jerusalem, recognize that, and Paul from Tarsus. But Barnabas from Jerusalem to Antioch to help there, Paul went and got... Barnabas went and got Paul, came back. They were working there, and they heard that there was going to be a problem in Jerusalem. That there was going to be a famine. And the church appointed them to collect an offering and to bring it to the Christians in Jerusalem. And so here come Barnabas and Paul. They come to Jerusalem. You know they meet. They hear the story of Peter's deliverance. You know they meet these families. You know they meet John Mark. We know that because when they went back to Antioch, they took him with them. Here's a young man who has seen the miracles of God. He's seen lives changed and transformed. He knows what it means to follow after Christ. He's been discipled. He knows the persecution that people face. James, has, James the brother of John, has been persecuted by hair and killed. Peter was imprisoned, intended to be killed at the Passover. But he's seen God answer prayer. Imagine what he just saw. Imagine you're a young man, you've become a follower of Jesus, you're part of a house church that meets in your home, you've been witnesses to many miracles, and now in a way that no human could accomplish, God delivered Peter from prison and death. Exciting times, difficult, but undeniably, God is moving. There's your enthusiasm, and here is a disciple. He had sat at the apostles' feet, no doubt, in Jerusalem. He had been taught the Word of God, and there is a stirring in his heart to be used by God. I want to be part of this movement. I want God to use me. Meanwhile, for John Mark, his cousin Barnabas and Paul had come telling the great work of God in Antioch. And now he gets to go back and help them. It wasn't after long after they got back that the leaders in Antioch were praying. And the Holy Spirit said, I want you to set aside Barnabas and Paul. And I want you to send them away, send them on a mission trip. And so they began to prepare, and they began to get ready to go on this mission trip. And the next mention that we have of young John Mark is when they left, they took him with them. Isn't that great? He gets to be their assistant. Not only now is he being personally discipled by Cousin Barnabas and by the great preacher Paul. Now he gets to be a part of a mission team. And I would imagine at some level, he's thinking short-term missions. Are we all about short-term missions? We like those trips in and trips out. This trip became more than that. 
as we will see. Uh, the stage, again, I'm calling the enthusiastic beginner, I think characterizes John Mark, Mark's life at this. And it's almost true always of a new believer. You know what it's like to be saved. You remember when you got saved? Your guilt was cleansed and washed. A load was lifted off of you. you had, you've experienced something that you've never experienced before. All of a sudden, your eyes are opened. There's a joy in you. There's the presence of God in you. You are a new believer, a new person, and there's an excitement. There's a hunger for the Word of God. There's a desire for this transformation, a recognition that God has already caused in your life. And for those of you who are discipling and you're looking for someone to disciple, it's always good to lead someone to the Lord and then disciple them while they have that enthusiasm, or to find someone who's been saved, because we have a lot of people who got saved but were never discipled. They got saved, and it's like, all right, now good, come to church and give an offering. We'll see you next week. And that was the extent of the discipleship that takes place too, too many times. And yet for many of us, it's not only a new beginner at the starting point of salvation, but maybe you've been not discipled and all of a sudden you come to a service or you go to a Bible study or you hear a sermon or you somehow the Holy Spirit just grabs your heart and all of a sudden you have a fresh anointing, a fresh oil is what David called it in the Psalms. He was anointed king three times. The first time when nobody knew about it. The second time over part of the kingdom and third time finally he took it. And it's just a, a, an a idea of the Holy Spirit coming upon us afresh and in you. And there's some truth that you're grabbing or some, some new cleansing, some new mountaintop experience. And you too have the characteristics of an enthusiastic beginner. This is somebody who's hungry for the word of God. Somebody who wants to grow. Somebody who wants to be fed. And aren't those the most fun people to teach? You guys ever teach in a classroom setting? Some of you have, a few of you have. Uh, have you ever taught students who really wanted to be there? Those are the ones you want to spend time with. Have you ever tried to teach somebody who didn't really want to be there at all? Yeah, we, most of us who have been in a classroom setting have. That's the greater struggle. We're going to get to them next week. But this week we're going to talk about the enthusiastic learner. So what do you do? This is a, the most fun and fulfilling time to enter a discipling relationship. So what do you do? You, first of all, remember what we studied last week, you teach. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You remember from Colossians chapter 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Doing what? Teaching and admonishing. And now I do want to give just a couple of things really quick. You need to be directive when you're teaching and instructing as I said last week, your priority is to help them develop a devotional life with God. The first thing you give them is not a list of to-dos and don'ts, a list of simple behaviors. The first thing that you do is you instruct through the Word of God and you open the Scriptures and you help them learn how to, on their own, connect with God in prayer. How to open the Word of God and ask the Holy Spirit to enlighten their minds and their soul. You assign passages on prayer. You pray with them. You listen to them praise to them pray you teach them the importance of praise you teach the importance of confession and repentance you teach them the importance of supplications and making your request known to God and you teach them the reality of the song that we just heard sung that when they pray God changes them as they yield and say nevertheless not my will but thine be done isn't that a great place to start isn't that a fun place to be you can do that with your children. You can do that with your parents. You should be doing it with your spouse. But you ought to be doing it with your friends and somebody that God brings into your life. Hey, can I pray for you? I got a problem. Got somebody. Hey, can I pray for you? Let's do that right now. 
There's a kind of prayer that God calls a prayer of praise. We've got to remember who we're talking to. And there's a kind of prayer that God calls intercession where we bring our requests and make them known to him. And you open your mouth after speaking the word of God and you talk to God in their presence. And by the way, when you're in the intentional discipling relationship, can I encourage you to do something? Be quiet and listen to them pray. Because there's a lot of conversations I've had where we've sat and people say, will you come and pray for me? Will you come and pray for me? And I will share scripture and I am happy to pray on people's behalf. But then I will say, now, I want you to talk to God. I want you to make your request known to him. I want to make sure that you know who you're talking to. And I want you to come to the place of yieldedness where you can say, not my will, but thine be done. So I will voice a prayer, and I want you to voice a prayer. You understand that discipling is in many ways coaching. It's instructing. It's modeling. And some of us are far too fond of the sound of our own voices to be good disciplers. And we need to be quiet and allow God to work in the heart. And again, when we talk about teach, there's always the subject. You teach Scripture. You memorize Scripture. You go through a book at a time. For instance, the Gospel of John, narrative, demonstrating who Jesus really is. Or you can go through a book with them. There's one I highly recommend called Living by the Book. It's by Howard Hendricks and Bill William Hendricks. And it is simply how as a new believer you can open the Bible and God, allow God to speak with you and how it directs your life. First thing is teach them. The second thing is go with them. Paul and Barnabas took John Mark with them to Antioch. And then when they went on the mission trip, they took John Mark with him on the mission trip. And you need to spend time with this enthusiastic beginner. Back to our story, Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark make their way to the island of Cyprus. It's likely John Mark's first time to travel so far. All things start well. They preach in the synagogue of the Jews. Now, there's no record in this passage that anyone believed. That's important. It's different than Jerusalem at Pentecost. It's different than Antioch when they got there. Uh, and so it is a more difficult place for the gospel to take root. Um, you can be sure that where God is moving, opposition is coming. They arrive at Paphos where the governor's mansion is. His name's Sergius Paulus. He's an intelligent man. He wanted to hear the word of God. But he had an advisor called Bar-Jesus, also known as Elimus. And he was a prophet quote-unquote, or a sorcerer. He openly opposed the gospel message that Paul and Barnabas were teaching, and he tried to turn the governor from the faith, but it didn't end well for him. You guys will know the story. Paul told him, be quiet. You're acting against God, and you will be blind. And so he, he lost his sight for a time. The governor believed, and we certainly there were others who believed. But Acts 13, 13 tells us what happens next in young John Mark's story. Acts 13, 13 says, Now Paul and his companions, they set sail from Paphos. So their first stop was the island of Cyprus. They went across the island. They went to Paphos. And then they got in a boat and they set sail. And they came to Perga in Pamphylia. They went just a little bit north and a little bit east. And there they docked. And then the next statement says, And John, this is John Mark, left them and returned to Jerusalem. And that's it. It didn't say John Mark was sad or depressed or angry or needed to go home or got a text message. It didn't say any of that stuff. It just says John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. 
Now, there's a lot we can surmise, but there's a lot that's pretty clear in, in Scripture. When the time came for the next trip to go, Barnabas and Paul were getting ready to go back on this circuitous route to visit the churches. And Barnabas said, well, here's John Mark. Let's sign him up again. And Paul said, no. And he basically says he was a failure last time he dropped out. I don't want to take somebody who stumbled on that. And it, it, it became a very serious dispute between Barnabas and Paul and Barnabas continues with John Mark and he goes back to Cyprus this very place where they were on their first stop on the mission trip to encourage the believers that were there so we know there were some meanwhile Paul teams up with Silas we're going to talk about that more next week but have you ever been discouraged there are a few things that we know we know that the journey was hard the results were not like what John Mark had witnessed in either Jerusalem or Antioch we know they faced stiff opposition and it was victorious, but certainly there was some battle weariness that came along with that. It is probable that John Mark was tired and overwhelmed and worried. It is clear from Acts 15, Paul considered his withdrawal a failure. John Mark was also carrying the weight of disappointing the very men he wanted to most please and emulate. He's a discouraged disciple. That's the second stage of being a disciple. I'm calling the discouraged disciple. I started to call it the frustrated follower because frustration and, and discouragement go together, don't they? As a matter of fact, I've got about seven names for each one of these. I'm giving you the, the most memorable ones, I hope. If you've been a believer for any length of time, you know what I'm talking about. You remember the excitement and determination of past days, but you stumbled or perhaps stumbled repeatedly, or it's just a dry time and discouragement takes root. Well, in a discipling relationship, you may be saying, all right, let's do this, and all of a sudden, they stop showing up. You guys ever have that happen? Hey, I'm going to go back to a class. When I was in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, I taught sign language classes because we were interpreting training because we had deaf people who always sat in the congregation right there. And every time we would start to have the next semester, we would start a brand new sign language class. And our average attendance on the first day of sign language class was about 15 to 18 people. That's a great size class for sign language. By week three, we were down to about 10. And typically, by about week six, we were down to about four. And we began to kind of jokingly say, we need to start with 100 so we can end up with 20. And that's kind of how it went. There was an enthusiasm at the beginning, but then because of weariness, fatigue, failure, failure to practice, lack of discipline, whatever, they disengaged. In a discipling relationship, people will disengage from you. They will stop showing up or they'll show up unprepared or they keep changing the subject. And you as a discipler will have times of discouragement. And so... Here's what the issue that we're facing right now. Here's the question. How do you disciple a discouraged disciple? And how do you keep from discouragement yourself? Now, we don't have that text. It's described what Barnabas did. And later, Peter, by the way. Can I give you some hope? This young man who was so discouraged, who left a mission trip, who Paul rejected as a ministry partner, later Paul depends upon and relies upon. This young man was probably discipled by another man named Peter. You guys are familiar with him. Peter calls him in the book of 1 Peter chapter 5. He calls him John Mark, my son. You guys remember Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Mark is John Mark, the author of the gospel. Largely, probably, 
recording the sermons that Peter preached and writing down the memories that Peter shared. And so we have a young man who is ultimately greatly used by God, but at this point, he's discouraged. How do you disciple a discouraged disciple? Well, the first thing I want to say is simply stay engaged. Don't give up on them too quickly. In James 5, we have the command, My brothers, if one of you wanders from the truth or someone brings him back, if he slides downhill in a way, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. And you remember Galatians chapter 6, that when somebody struggles or they stumble or they're overtaken, entrapped, ensnared in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore them. Don't be too quick to quit on them. Stay with them for a while. You have to be tender and you have to be tough. When you're dealing with discouragement, you have to be tender and tough. Discouragement is a temptation that is common to man. And in dealing with it, sometimes we need tenderness and sometimes we need to be tough. Either way, get this. Discouragement is not to be tolerated or wallowed in. It's to be fought. You guys ever wallow in the slough of self-pity and discouragement? You ever been there? Nothing I ever do seems to work. And nobody likes me. And it's hard. And I'm tired. And it's too big and it's too much. And I just can't keep going. Can I tell you that discouragement, while common, is to be battled against and defeated in the life of a Christian? Now, for us to look at how to do this, I want to talk about a discouraged people. If you have a copy of your scriptures in your hand, you ought to look at Nehemiah chapter 4. And I will tell you, in my studies, I cheated a little bit. In Sunday school, I taught all the way through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah this morning. How about that? But as I was studying for that and I was studying for this, I saw a perfect example of what Nehemiah did to encourage a discouraged people. And so if you'll open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 4, I want to talk about what happens. The children of Israel had been freed to come back to Jerusalem. Most of them didn't come, but some of them did. There are probably 70,000, 80,000 people in Jerusalem at this time. They've already rebuilt the temple, and it doesn't look anything like the old one did, but they have a temple, and they're offering sacrifices, and they're worshiping. But the walls have been destroyed, and it's time to build the walls. And God calls Nehemiah. He gains the favor of the Persian king. He is resourced, and he comes, and he examines what to do, and then he goes to the people and says, It's time, guys. Let's build a wall. And they're excited. They know it's time and they're ready. They go from being enthusiastic beginners. They go to being enthusiastic beginners quickly. Let's go. Let's clear this rubble out. Let's get stones and timbers. Let's rebuild these walls. But here's what happens in verse 7. When Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard against as a protection against them day and night. Listen, they were weary. They had been doing the walls. They had been working. They were tired. And now they have opposition. Sanballat and Tobias is threatening them. 
And again, they were in verse 10, it says in Judah, the, the, the tribe of Judah, the leaders, the ones who should have been cheerleading here, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. This is a discouraging thing. Here's, here's, here's the issue. They're just overwhelmed. They're tired, and they're overwhelmed at the size of the task. It's just too much. And they were worried. The enemies were coming against them. The enemies said, verse 11, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. We're going to surprise attack you guys. We're going to kill you. So they're tired. They're overwhelmed. And now they're worried. And even their kinsmen, verse 12, were telling them they ought to quit. At the time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, again and again and again, you must return to us. You can't do it. Quit. Stop. Come home where it's safe. And yet God had given them a task to do. What did Nehemiah do? How did he encourage them? And I want you to walk through this with me and do it quickly. And I want you to think about it in two ways. Number one, if you're discouraged, this message is for you. But number, and if, by the way, if you're not, there's going to come a time. <laughs> Discouragement comes in cycles. But I will tell you this. Many of us deal with discouraged people all, often, frequently. Here are things that you can do to help a discouraged disciple be restored to intimacy with Christ and joy. You ready? Are you ready? Yes, sir. Okay, all right. What did Nehemiah do? Verse 13. In the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and in open places, I, Nehemiah, stationed the people by their clans and their family groups with their swords and their spears and their bows. What's the first thing that he did? He armed them. He gave them the weapons that they were going to need. When you are dealing with discouragement in yourself and when you are helping someone who is walking through discouragement, the very first thing you should do is give them the weapons of our warfare. Friends, we're in a battle. We have an enemy. They had Sanballat and Tobias and their kinsmen. We have powers and principalities. We have Satan who walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom who he may devour. We have the weakness of our own flesh. And we must put... It is insane to go into battle without armor, to go into battle without weapons. And so you need to give them the weapons of our warfare. Ephesians chapter 6, put on the whole armor of God. Make sure that they are saved, that they have the helmet of salvation. Make sure that they are in the word of God, the truth. Make sure that they are defended by prayer and completely wrapped up, totally prepared by prayer, by the word of God, by depth and by study. You give them the tools that they need. And sometimes you just got to listen. You just got to listen to them talk and find out what's going on in their life. What is the situation that they're dealing with? The Word of God addresses every concern. It addresses every need. It is sufficient for every situation. He armed them. Verse 14, what do you do next? I looked around and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. On your outline, you may want to put he assured them or you should assure 
them. Can I tell you something? I can tell you one thing that is inevitably and always true about discouragement. If you are discouraged, you are not looking into the face of the Lord. If you're discouraged, it's because you have not set your mind on things that are above. If you're discouraged, it's because you have forgotten who God is. And you have forgotten what He has done. And you have forgotten what He's done in your life to bring you to this place. Listen to something. We have a God who is great and awesome and nothing is impossible with Him. We have a God who gave His life for you that you might give your life to Him. And no circumstance, everything on this earth is temporary. Amen? Except for the Word of God and the, the people of God. Everything on this earth is temporary. Amen? And there is no circumstance, no situation that looking into the face of God. See, um, Robert Louis Stevenson wrote a little short story. And in it, he had people inside a ship. There was a captain or a pilot who was in the wheelhouse and a storm blew up. And the people were inside and they weren't getting any information. They were getting no updates and their concern became palpable. And they began to be really afraid as the ship tossed to and fro. And one of the men said, I've got to find out what's going on. And as the rains are coming down and the wind is blowing, he makes his way out on the deck. And up to the wheelhouse, the captain or the pilot of the ship recognizes that someone's there and he looks at him and he sees the fear on this man's face. And he just smiles at him. The man looks at the captain, nods his head, and goes back down. When he gets back down, he says, don't worry so much. I just saw his face, the captain's face, and he smiled at me. He has got things under control. He knows what the future holds. We can rest in what he knows. Let me tell you, I think that's a beautiful picture that you and I need to spend time in the, in, in the presence of God. One of the ways to do that is through music. One of the ways to do that is through prayer. One of the ways, I, I was a student at North Greenville back in the Middle Ages. I don't know if you all remember those times. But I was having some pretty rough times. Life was kind of up and down and all over the place. And I had been called to preach. I was struggling in classes. I was leading an organization. Just, I was tired and I was frustrated. And there was a lot that was going on. And it was just one of those down days. You guys know what I mean? And I wasn't sure what to do. And I was at wit's end. I just didn't know what to do. And I walked into Turner Auditorium. And there was a music room in the back. And Joyful Sound had just been formed. It's a musical group that was uh, out of North Greenville. And they had just been formed. And I walked in there. And they were just rehearsing. And it was just kids rehearsing. And they began to sing. And they sang songs of praise. And they sang songs of worship. And God took those truths and the words of that song and the emotion that music brings. And he set my mind. And I walked in there not knowing what in the world. And I walked out knowing regardless of what in the world, there's a God who loves me. And there's a God who's in control. And I can trust him. You want to help somebody who's discouraged. Number one, Arm them. Give them the tools that they need. But number two, assure them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Amen? Now we could probably end the sermon there and probably should, but we're not. Because he did more than that. And the next part of that phrase says, And fight for your brothers, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. He 
aroused them. He aroused their emotions. He aroused their love for their families. You may want to just write down aroused beside that, put encourage. He encouraged them. He served as a cheerleader to them. Listen, this is important. What we do matters beyond your tiredness and your weakness and your ability to, to complete the task. God's called us for his glory to invest our lives in one another, to serve him, to be close to him. And it matters. We speak into their lives to build them up, not tear them down. Your family matters, the one you love, the missions that God has given to us. And we are to encourage one another. I have been, at times past in my life, part of a run group. And you know what my number one job was, in my perspective? I'm a cheerleader. I'm a cheerleader. You know how I learned that? Because when I first got started, there were people who were running beside me, cheerleading me. Now, when I ran, they said, you could do it, and I knew, no, I can't. <laughs> the good thing about the Christian life is you run beside someone and you say, listen, you can do it because God is faithful. You can do it because you remember the Lord who is great and amazing and almighty. You can do it because there's never any panic in heaven. There are only plans because God is, great, is sufficient. You can do it because the God who rules this world and this universe and all that there is is sufficient and he lives in you. Amen? Isn't that good? That's good news, folks. That's good news. So he armed them. He assured them. He aroused them or encouraged them. And then he put them to work. <laughs> Verse 15, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that the God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. Sometimes the best next step for discouragement is to just go do something. You having trouble getting out of your room? Get up and make your bed. Clean your room. You're struggling with what to do? Find something and put your hand to the task. The worst thing for discouragement is to settle in a morass of self-pity. You guys ever been sick? I mean, physically sick? What kind of sick do y'all get? Do y'all get sick, I need somebody to take care of me? Or do y'all get sick, leave me alone, go away? Which one of y'all? Depends. Kind of depends. Uh, my wife was sick last week, bless her heart, and she's a, a precious, precious lady. I just hate it when she's sick. And, you know, you just don't feel like doing anything. You're physically ill. And I walked into the house, and, of course, she was tired, and she was hacking, and she was coughing, and she had all of the things that were necessary for, to, to take care of someone, to take care of herself. Because I will be honest with you, she's way better at taking care of me than I am at taking care of her. When I'm sick, she is right there, and she's always asking. When she's sick, I'm like, honey, I'll pray for you. Anything I can do before I go, see you later. Boom. So, so, so she's way better at taking care of me than I'm taking care of her. But after she got to feeling a little bit better physically, and after she got to be able to move around, she got out and did something. She got in the car, and she went to the store. And then she got out and she did a little bit more. And then she got out and she did a little bit more. And there's this, I don't know, there's just a kind of a dark cloud of discouragement that you got to work your way out of. You got to put your hands to a task. You've got to take a step. You've got to make some movement. And when you're discipling someone and you find them in this spiral, that's when the tough comes in. You step in there and say, do this. Now, if you can't do it by yourself, come do it with me. But do this. 
and you put their hands to the task. That's what Nehemiah did. Everybody went back to work. He gave them a job to do, the same job that they originally had, and he held them accountable to it. Sometimes it's all I can do to take another step. Then God reminds me gently of the promises that he's kept. At times I want to say, I quit. I've had all I can take. It's hard to live by my own words. I feel like such a fake. I tried so hard to be a light so that the Lord above could use me as a vessel to emanate his love. Giving up is not an option. I've trusted God too long. Even though my way is rough, he keeps me safe and strong. I know God's on my side. I know the victory has been won by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, his son. Lord, don't let me lose my faith. Help me to live each day contented in your love and peace as you gently lead the way. I will not quit. I will not stop. I will not sit down and lie on my own shield while there is a task to be done, a Lord to serve, a people to reach for the glory of God. Amen? And so the work resumes. I want to jump down to verse 19 in our passage. I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we're separated from the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. There's something to be said about assembling together, isn't it? We're scattered. We're alone. During the week, I'm out here and I'm in this place. And during the week, you're out there and you're in that place. And during the week, someone's over there and there are struggles and there are difficulties and there's a sense of solitude. Come together. My brethren, forsake not the assembling of yourselves as the manner of some is. But rather, while there is time, you come together where you can encourage one another and admonish one another and, and, and teach. Let me, there's a dynamic that takes place when the people of God sit at the feet of God together in which the presence of God is manifested that you don't sense in any other setting and in any other situation. What is the first thing that a discouraged person wants to do? Stay home, get coffee and a book. Y'all see me preaching to me, right? What is the first thing a discouraged person wants to do? Watch a movie instead of thinking about anything. What's the, what's the first thing that a discouraged person... What is the last thing a discouraged person wants to hear? You know what you get to do as a discipler? Go get them. Go get them. Depending upon the intimacy of your relationship, you invite them and you text them and you call them. You offer to go pick them up. You don't lose touch. And if they don't make it the first week, you try again the second. They don't make it the second. You try again the third. There are times when toughness and love calls for determination. And, it, and you may, whatever it takes... They need to be connected to the church, to the assembly of God. And by the way, streaming is not a substitute, and a sermon on tape is not a substitute to gathering with the people with God. Verse 21, so we labored at the work. Half of them held spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. And I said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem. 
that there may be a guard for us by night. We need a guard. We may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us, took off our clothes. Each kept his weapons at his right hand. We didn't even get undressed except to clean. We were ready all the time. We were vigilant. The last thing that he does is he admonishes them. He warns them. He says, hey, don't go out in the night. Don't be sneaking out of the walls. Don't be careless. Don't play around. Much like Peter said, be sober, be vigilant. Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. What do you do to them? Here's what you do when you're discouraged. Here's what you do when you're helping someone who's discouraged. You with me? You arm them with the word of God in prayer, with the application of scripture for the situation that they're facing. You assure them God is still God and he's still in control and he still loves you and he's still moving and he's still working. And you can trust him. You arouse them. You be a cheerleader. You encourage them. You speak courage into their lives. You apply them. You give them work to do and accountability to respond to. You assemble them. You keep them connected with the body. And you admonish them. You warn them. You warn them about vigilance and the need and that there is is an enemy. And that last point, and this is it, obviously, but you pray. You pray. You pray fervently. How many people can you fix? <coughs> None. Only God can do that. But you know what God wants to do? He wants you to be the vessel, the channel that he uses to speak truth into their life so that he transformed their heart. And to do that, you have to pray. Now, we've got to get beyond Lord bless him and Lord bless her and Lord help him and Lord help her. You got to get beyond that. You need to read Nehemiah's prayer in Nehemiah chapter 1 when he became aware of the condition of Jerusalem. You need to read Paul's prayer in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 3. There's so many places. You need to read the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ on your behalf recorded in John chapter 17 i got to tell you, when you pray for me, I want you to spend some time over it, would you? I want you to spend some time over it. I want you to pray, Lord, bless Marty. Now, I want to be blessed. Don't misunderstand me. But can I tell you how to pray for me? I want you to pray that God will keep me close to him. That God will incline my heart to him. God will make me open to his word. That God will keep me from distraction. I want you to pray that God will not allow me to succumb to temptation because there are temptations every day. There are temptations to discouragement and to depression and despondency. There are temptations to, to distraction that can take us away from what God would have us to do. And pray that God would set a hedge of protection and a shield about me. I want you to pray that I will recognize, not guess at, think at, know, or presume, but I will recognize that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in me and that I am his inheritance and that he has given me an inheritance when he chose me and saved me and adopted me as his son. I want you to pray for me that my life will not be a roller coaster of highs and lows, but it will be day by day, sufficient day by day, depending, learning, and trusting him. 
I want you to pray for me that I will be a vessel that is clean, that I will not harbor sin or deceive myself, but that the Word of God, through the people of God and the Spirit of God, will reveal sin that can be confessed and repented of and that strongholds will be uprooted. I want you to pray, above all, that God will move in my life and fill me to the extent that others can clearly see Jesus in me. I got a longer list if you want to keep going. But do you know how to pray for people? How to pray for those? Pray fervently. Follow the the prayers that are recorded in Scripture. Go back to Ezra. Go back to pray. Pray. When you come, when you're reading, you're you're doing your Ezra Bible reading, and you see someone praying, write it down. Write it down. We have a great resource back here, by the way, called Praying the Psalms, Learning How to Pray. Scripture, and he begins with a study in Psalms. It's a great means to just kind of refine your heart to prayer. Next week, we're going to look at the next stage of discipleship. You know what it is? Neither do I. I don't know what to call it. But too many of us are mountaintop valley. Mountaintop valley. Mountaintop Valley. So you guys can figure out a name for that. I've got people that are helping me trying to wordsmith this. We go from enthusiastic beginner to discouraged disciple to what? I don't know. Wayward Walker? Probably not. Y'all can do better than that. But how do you deal with someone who is up one day and way off the next? And then up one day and then way off the next? How do you deal with that? How do you make sure that doesn't happen in your life? And then the fourth stage is what? It's one who, like Paul, is pressing forward. It's a sign of maturity that you release to make disciples of others. Father, I pray that you will help us, first of all, take the task of making mature disciples for your glory. I pray that you will make that a reality in our life, that we won't wait on somebody to come to us, and we won't come up with any excuses, but we'll just obey. We'll just obey. We'll just go to the work. Father, I pray that You will bring enthusiastic beginners into our life, people who are excited to learn, that we can rejoice with, that we can give clear instruction to and guidance to, that we can prepare and equip, as Barnabas and Paul did for this young man, to deploy into ministry. So, Father, I pray that you'll let us have that privilege. Father, I also pray that you'll help us as we walk side alongside of one another who are discouraged. Help us to be armed. Father, help us to be assured of who you are and recognize our identity in you. Father, I pray that you'll take us through all of the steps that Nehemiah models as you equip us to not wallow in discouragement, but to be effective. Father, I want to thank you that the walls were built in only 52 days. Sometimes we think that there's no end or there's no hope. And again and again, you assure us that there is. That success is right around the corner. That peace is right around the corner. That the the joy that we anticipate from the completion of the task is right around the corner. We look forward to your return soon and very soon. Father, be glorified in us. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen.